0: Welcome to Criterium Nation, where we discuss life lived one corner at a time. I'm your host, Rob Kelly. My co-host Frank Cundiff is out of town this week with Project Echelon. He's participating in the Take That Hill charity ride hosted by Purple Heart Homes down in North Carolina. Today's episode is a story that I've wanted to tell for a long time. It features two of my favorite people in the world, Jason and Robin Midoff. It is a deviation away from purely criterium coverage, but it's a story that transcends all the disciplines of cycling because it's about what happens when tragedy and trauma interrupt our lives. I had initially planned on calling this episode Partners because it was about this strong married couple who triumphed over injury. But after getting deeper into these interviews, I realized this story isn't just about two people. Rather, it's about the incredible collective that they built around themselves. That's why I decided that the title should be Community, to reflect the reality that we are all connected, and that it's our shared strength that makes it possible for us to overcome adversity. As you'll soon hear, this is a story about my friends. They set out on an adventure, leaving D.C. and heading out to California to create a new home. In 2013, Jason won a Masters World Championship on the track. He already held several Masters national titles and had come close to an elite podium in the Omnium. But one day, in 2016, shortly after moving to California, an act of negligence by a 19-year-old driver nearly ended all of it. This is the story of what happens next. The story of how a community helps a couple pick up the pieces and put it all back together again. But before we get into today's episode, I want to talk about the Wide Angle Podium Network of Shows, the world's only collection of top-tier independent cycling media. Check out everything the network has to offer at WideAnglePodium.com. And while you're there, please do hit the donate button to help support this show and all the others on the network. And if you like what we're doing here on this show, please leave us a review. And don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice. We tell this story in two parts. It'll conclude with Robin's side of the saga, but it starts here with Jason, the former rock and roll musician who found bike racing and it changed his life.
1: Man, this is this is almost ex- existential in nature. Let's see. I'm Jason Midoff, originally from Somerville, New Jersey. Uh, grew up in the Mid Atlantic, so I've lived in New York, New Jersey, Ohio, Virginia, Maryland. As far as interesting cycling stuff goes, I really didn't start taking cycling seriously until I'd moved down to Richmond, Virginia. All of my musical ambitions were coming to a close, and I think I was looking for something to fill that gap of travel and excitement and attention you get from being on stage. And naturally, or unnaturally, cycling seemed to fit the bill. And this, this is the mid-40s person looking at the early 20s person uh, that I was. When we get to go
0: back now and look at those early 20s Jason Midoff pictures back when you were in the band, back before you started getting into healthy eating and uh, clean living, and then taking a look at who you are now. I mean, the beard is gorgeous and wonderful, but the rest of you is a total, total change.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, there's no sense in doing something if you're not going to put a full effort into it. And I think that's something that, uh, it's probably carried on, you know, being, I guess, being an angsty teen, you know, you always want to get a hundred percent or get a reaction or get some sort of validation for the hours of practice or the hours of, you know, just trying to, to be heard translates over similarly in cycling, especially in endurance, you know, in an endurance pursuit, like whether it's, you know, mountain biking or road bike, road biking, the more you do it, the better you get at it.
0: In October of 2013, so just around seven years ago, you became the Masters World Champion on the track at Manchester in the United Kingdom. What was
1: that like? Well, let's let's back this up because this is I can't say it was a two year journey. But in 2013 in Manchester, I won the points race. That year, I also got second in the pursuit to Barney Story, Um, but he spent 10 years on the British elite track squad. And then when he was no longer fast enough to be part of the elite and Olympic squad, they moved him to the Paralympic squad. And he has gold medals uh, from Rio. And his picture is in the Manchester velodrome, along with Froome, Boardman, Wiggins. So imagine walking down the hallway of greats and there's the guy I'm racing for, you know, for the gold medal round of the individual pursuit. Yeah. In 20, so in 2013 I won the points race, back it up to 2012. I went to Manchester um, because worlds is typically a two year stint, wherever it goes. Um, In 2012, I medaled in every event I did. So that was the points race, the scratch race and the individual pursuit but I didn't win anything. That piece of unfinished business really stuck with me all of 2013 before I went back to Manchester.
0: You know, coming away with it, with the jersey, with the gold medal, coming back to the United States, obviously there's an insane high that comes with all of this, but it wasn't enough for you. I mean, it wasn't like, oh, I won this. Now I'm going to go right off into the sunset. You kept going.
1: Well, I I think after, after Manchester in 2013, you know, I really started to think of ways, you know, cycling had given me, given, given me so many opportunities. I got the opportunity to travel the world, you know, literally, you know, with some of my teammates, I got, you know, it helped me kind of truly validate hard work personally. Um, that also bleeds over into your professional life as well, because anytime you can you know, set goals and then go after them and then ultimately achieve them, you know, you start taking that methodology and you, you know, it scales across many, you know, parts of your life, you know? So I think in 2013 is when I really started to think like, how this sport has given me so much, you know, going from starting at 220 pounds uh, to then, you know, to be ultimately being a world champion. I mean, I didn't think that was going to be the end of the road. When you look at things, you're like, that's just the next step. That's my next goal. You know, this is what I'm aiming for. I don't know if it was more of like, you can relax. I don't think it's within my personality to relax, but I also feel like it's also, you know, what else, what else can I give? And you know, you and I know each other from, you know, not just the Mabra cycling scene, but also being on the board of directors. I thought that was a great avenue that, you know, I had a lot of racing experience, not just locally within the Mid-Atlantic, but also nationally, um, you know, from a couple of different disciplines, which I thought would be some good advice or some valuable experience to pass on and, you know, really try to make it a better place, make Mid- Mid-Atlantic or Mabra a, a better place to race bikes.
0: You did, in a brief period of time, a ton of stuff. Not only were you one of the best road racers with DC Velo in the Mid-Atlantic, great crit racer, obviously world champion on the track, you became the president of the Mid-Atlantic Bicycle Racing Association before I did. And then something happens, and we become great friends, and you decide to up and leave. In the summer of 2016.
1: <laughs> uh, well, it wasn't just decided to up and leave, just, but we'd been married for quite a few years. Life had kind of settled out. Um, you know, my wife had kind of concluded her, she still loved racing, but had concluded her stint at racing, you know, at the elite level, um, you know, her job professionally, the political appointee that she was working for you know, had decided he was going to go, you know, back into the private sector, the political landscape. And this is all prior to uh, the Trump presidency. um, And it opened up new opportunities for Um, Robin, you know, being the attorney and, you know, that she is, she, you know, was getting recruited and a lot of interest from a lot of different organizations. And we had always talked about, not that we didn't have anything in DC, but before we became attached through family obligations through you know parental obligations how do we break free we had both been out here training in the past and said can we live in california so we uh, packed the dogs and a cat in an rv and you know once robin signed the papers for a new gig uh drove cross country
0: whatever happened during this like three week long trip that it took you to go from washington dc in an rv to southern california where you are now in Los Angeles must have been like foundationally changing for you because you got a tattoo now on your (laughs) shoulder. That is a depiction of this. I mean, being in California has changed you. It has brought some part of you out that didn't exist before. And I can tell that there is a love that you have for this world that you are now a part of that you had not had before.
1: I would say anytime you take two strongly independent people and then put them on a journey together, you're going to come, you know, it's, it's like, what was the Ben Franklin thing? Ben Franklin saying you put two adversaries in a room and either, you know, they're going to come out friends. Not that anything was that serious. um, But, you know, it's, I think it was almost the first great adventure that we took together as a married couple, because... We were both established. We were both professionals, you know. Usually, professionals at the top of our games. Um, you know, we were both successful bike racers. Had gotten a lot of, you know, gotten almost everything we wanted out of the sport at the time. You know, for us, it was maybe a new beginning in a sense, but not, you know, but not really. Not as much as, uh, <laughs> as you know, we know what's going to come here. Driving cross country is something that we'd always talked about doing, and everybody talks about doing it, but how many people truly do it? And then uprooting everything you know and is comfortable with, and then moving to a new area where the only support net- network we had was each other.
0: Yeah, I've had a lot of experience with this in my life because I, I've moved around a lot. You know, I, I lived in, I grew up in Chicago, but then I decided that Kansas was the place that I wanted to be, and then. For some reason, I thought Mississippi was a great place and Russia was an awesome place. But then I finally landed here in in D.C. And when you get to that new place where you don't have anybody and you're trying to build this this network, this like community, what's it like in L.A.? I mean, what is that like trying to make friends in Los Angeles on the bike?
1: Oh, it sucks. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean it's it's going to you know it's going to sound like a lot of hate but the northeast Los Angeles cycling scene it's tough you know really like I thought I was in it could have been my you know on initially it could have been my you know way of approaching it you know I thought you know well, I was hot shit had some you know sort of street cred you know I've won you know like a bunch of races I got stripes I got stars and bars and whatever and out here Like it's the, it's when they say that it's the Republic of California, it it truly is like a lot of people here that I've noticed. And this is kind of speaks to generally to people from LA or from this area have never left the state of California. So everything that they do is focused just on, you know, their geographic region and they don't see much outside of their chosen community. You know, what I've noticed about the cycling community here, it's very, you know, it is geographically focused. Like there's people who live on the West side, which meaning the West side of Los Angeles, um, you know, Malibu, Santa Monica, and they only ride up and down the coast in the Santa Monica mountains. And it's amazing that that's, those are the kind of roads and experiences that I took to be typical Californian. I mean, it's amazing. Why would you ever want to leave? But then there's also the people who live, you know, kind of in the San Diego area, which is another incredible, you know, area, right? You know, like, you know, you get to ride out, you know, to PCH on the ocean, you get to do Palomar. But what I, it took me a while to find was kind of my crew here in northeast L.A., we live in Los Angeles, but we are next to the road. You know, we are on the west side of the Rose Bowl um, at the base of the San Gabriel Mountains. Can't you know there's one decent one decent-ish group ride, uh the Montrose ride on Saturdays. People seem to think the Rose Bowl is a great group ride after doing the 7 a.m. or the 10 a.m. in the DC area. Kind of hard kind of hard to say. Um, it's that both of these are great group rides. You know, it's it's it very it's it's almost like in DC, people come to DC for. start of these rides. And you know, it's not like you have a massive group ride out in Centerville or you have one in Springfield or you have one in Prince George's County. Everybody still comes to DC for the jumping off point. Here, that's not that's not the case.
0: The big thing, I don't think we're burying the lead here, is that you suffer a trauma on September 30th of 2016. You had just moved to LA. You had started to create this culture, this vibe. You had started to meet people in Pasadena and go for rides somewhere other than Topanga or GMR or or what's that? Angeles Crest. That that's that's a great climb slash ride slash everything. But September thirtieth, twenty sixteen. What happens?
1: Coming home from a ride, I was going down Altadena. I think it's Avenue Altadena Road, and I'm heading south in the far right-hand lane. And I'm, you know, thinking about, oh man, we're going to get home. Robin and I, we're going to go out to dinner. Where are we going to go? And the next thing I know, I wake up in the hospital. and My wife's there.
0: And this is only three miles from your house, maybe.
1: No, it was a mile. It was less than a mile from our house.
0: You wake up in a hospital and you find out that an uninsured. 19-year-old had T-boned you and sent you flying over her car. Correct.
1: Well, actually, the first thing they said, you're in the hospital and your wife's here. And what they said, my first words out of my mouth were, uh-oh.
0: What ended up happening is this woman nearly kills you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and, and she, destroys your, she destroyed your specialized tarmac, <laughs> too.
1: Yeah. But bikes are, I mean, they're tools at this point, right? Like it's nice to have nice tools, but yeah. Um, from what was put together, I was riding home. I was doing roughly 28 miles an hour. So my Garmin said before it came to a stop, you know, she was looking for parking. She was driving. So this is a four lane road for, you know, four lane residential ish street, meaning there was houses on one side and Eaton Canyon, which is a, um, hiking area, natural, you know, an entrance to the San Gabriel mountains right across the street. And she was looking for parking on the side of the road where I was riding. And so she took a U-turn over the double yellow line and I hit the front passenger wheel well of the car and launched myself over her car. And, you know, it had happened so fast and so violently I never got a chance to put my hands up and, you know, I smashed the, uh, front, you know, kind of left temple of my head and came sliding to a stop, you know, from my injuries, like I had broken my orbital, I had broken my nose, I'd broken both my hands, broken my wrist. And, you know, clearly I broke my helmet. My glasses looked like they had gone through a a grinder because they definitely saved my, you know, saved my eye in that area of my face. And thing is, I don't remember any of it. But the interesting thing was, as, you know, we had just moved to California, we were, you know, probably the days prior, you know, we're moving from, you know, healthcare, you know, companies and because we've been generally healthy individuals and we had a deep network in the DC area and, you know, through DC Velo and through the community, you know, we never went to see the doctor when you were, you know, kind of forced to go through, you know, this change and all these things you typically take for granted, healthcare, you don't ask the questions like, is this doctor good? You know, because we never, well, I would say we're cyclists. We're in general healthy people. We never go to the doctor unless it's something serious. And so we just picked whatever the first, you know, kind of healthcare option was on the sheet. And, you know, there was a doctor's office close to where we were living. So it was like, okay, that sounds good.
0: And you're doing all of this, basically knowing nobody too. So it all falls on Robin.
1: Yes. Yes, it does. (laughs) And she, she's got it. And she has to, you know, put up with somebody who is used to being very independent, who is now you, we weren't really sure who was going to really wake up. You know, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't put on my own shirt. I couldn't, you know, because my hands were both broken. I could barely, you know, I couldn't, uh, you know, button my pants. Like it was, And on top of it, you're trying to recover from a head injury, which is something that gets a lot more press now. Um, But at the time, you know, it's still, you know, concussion or severe concussion, however you want to, you know, however you want to shake it. It was not as well, you know, there wasn't, I mean, I'm sure there were protocols for high level Olympic athletes and maybe, you know, motorsport athletes, but it wasn't coming down to kind of, you know, the layman, much less some sort of master's age cyclist
0: you know you you have to spend the night at the hospital for observation and checking out and they let you go the next day October 1st but clearly it isn't like you walk out of the hospital that next day and you're you're fine you know both hands are busted up you're dealing with traumatic brain injury is there a point in time that you're thinking I'm never going to be the same Jason Midoff that I was 24 hours ago.
1: That thought has never really crossed my mind. But initially, because and this goes back to the healthcare story, because the hospital, the ambulance took me to was not part of our network. They wanted to, to discharge me that night, you know, not with no observation and some Advil. And I stood up in the emergency room and I threw up like three quarts of blood because all, everything that I had broken, you know, nose and everything I was swallowing, you know, consuming. And then they decided, you know, with some persuasion from our friend who's an FBI agent um, that they would keep me overnight. (laughs) But, you know, I I mean, I think I approached, you know, recovery from, you know, an injury like this, like anything else, like I knew I was going to get through it. I knew I didn't know necessarily how it's one of these things where what else can you do? You know, really, we're still grappling with a new environment, finding the right doctors. You know, I'd been, you know, I had to go through, you know, there was the concussion part and then there was all the physical stuff. The first, you know, the first thing was, can I physically be able to function? And then coinciding with that, you know, neurology appointments, you know, getting us, you know, getting those types of things, you know, checked out as well. And because it all works on a referral basis, I have to go to whoever my primary care was, who was a terrible doctor at the time. Um, And when we we looked him up after the fact, the guy had already been brought to the board for fraud charges against elderly patients. You know, they're really your gateway to all your specialists. And this guy did not understand, very old school guy. Oh yeah, you hit your head. You know, not understanding that not, all, and I don't necessarily consider myself a high-performing individual physically and mentally, but I do know maybe higher performing than the general public, <laughs> you know, in a sense. And and look, I mean, that sounds really terrible, but at the same time, you know, my job is, you know making decisions, making decisions for an organization, working with people. Like, I need to communicate. I need to be able to relate to people. I need to take the messages that, you know, as a business, we are trying to communicate and, you know, put those in a format in a way that other people understand, not just the nuances of what we're trying to say, but also get the general overall message. And I would say that takes a certain amount of processing power.
0: And you felt that you were a little slow on the uptick there.
1: Oh, absolutely. You know, I I work, you know, my boss is incredible. I mean, she steered an extreme amount of work away from me for, you know, first couple months and allowed me to, you know, kind of come back as, you know, I mean, as, you know, as not, not say that they didn't trust my judgment, but as I could handle it.
0: When was it in the process of your recovery that it went from, I just want to get back to being able to function to I want to get back to the version of me that existed before on the bike.
1: This is, this is where I have to give credit to uh, my buddy, Kevin Phillips out here. He's, he's somebody that I met racing on the track has been one of my friends, you know, for better part of a decade now. But after I got hit, you know, I was starting to, I was riding inside, you know, as soon as I you know, physically could support myself in an up, up, you know, kind of an upright position, you know, he said, Hey, do you think you could get fit enough to ride man four in our team pursuit at worlds? Because worlds was in LA 2017 and 2018. And I think that's the, that's kind of when as much as I, you know, people, other people feel like I've accomplished a lot, you know, I don't want that to be my ending of my site. You know, I want to dictate how I go out.
0: Well, you know, when I was there in the, in the winter of 2017 and we were riding together, You know, you were definitely a step off. How was that process of physical recovery?
1: I mean, it's slow. It's not like you see in the movies, right? Um, You know, you still have a, I mean, once you start to get, I would say, 75% back to normal, where you feel like where other people envision you being almost 100%, you know, life expectations still come back at you. Um, you know, you still expected to, you know, work, you know, eight hours a day, you know, it's like, you can't dedicate all this time to recovery because real life happens.
0: What was the hardest step between where you were as an injured person and the person that you wanted to become?
1: I think it's the head injury. I think it's the moodiness. I think it's not to say that I had a short fuse before. But it was the frustration that builds up to why can't I do this now? Why can't I move my body this way? Or why does it hurt to do this? Or, you know, you're trying to do mental gymnastics. and You're like, why is this not connecting? I know this connects. You know, I think it's that frustration of knowing that I am better than what this situation is right now, but I can't get there yet.
0: What was it do you think that finally got you through that?
1: Probably winning the scratch race and in the individual <laughs> individual pursuit last year at TrackNats. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that is three years worth of time. Yeah. And I, you know, and honestly, I think it really, you know, whatever that last hitch was, that whether it was a seed of doubt, something happened where it just whatever it was just snapped. And I was free of all that. Like, I was, you know, loose. I was having fun. Like, I wasn't stressing about things. You know, it was, it just became like, I don't want to say I just felt lighter and I just started having fun. Like, I think what happens is being a world champion, people put expectations on you. And if you can't meet them for one reason or another, it grinds on you or grounds, grinds on me. It's like, well, you're a world champion. Of course, you should be able to do this. And you're like, can't reach that level right now. I don't know what it is. I don't, you know, recovery is physical. It's emotional. It's, you know, it's mental. It's, I don't want to say you become a victim because it's not a victim, but you become looked at as this person and you want to be as proud as, you know, kind of those stripes, you know, identify you as. But when you can't reach that, at least on a consistent basis, I found myself getting very, Ill. Like, like I said, you get very frustrated, you know, like you're doing all the work you're doing, but you're somehow something's not allowing you to reach that level. And I think at some point I was almost resigned to be like, wow, that's it. You know, like I'm just going to be mediocre because I got hit. But then part of me was also like, I'm not going to let this 19 year old dictate how the rest of my cycling future is going to be is going or my the rest of my cycling future is going to go
0: other than winning that national championship which we're going to talk about a little bit more in a second here you know was it just the grind one day at a time one set of weights at a time one set of intervals at a time that that got you through this
1: i think so you know and then cycling being a very goal you know kind of centric sport You know, i you know, I need something to look forward to, you know, I need, I need something to keep me excited, to keep me on, keep me on the path, um, you know, to keep pushing forward. And if I didn't have something out there, like I said, my friend, Kevin, who's, you know, came out of this, you know, he's, I hold him in such high regard because he he recognized that part of my personality being like, if he has a goal, he will, you know, he will keep making strides forward.
0: You know, you you go into the national championship at Carson in California in in 2019. You know, what was the event that you went to that nationals aiming for?
1: I don't think I was aiming for any of them, to be honest with you. I think I was resigned to just kind of see what happens. But I think also inside, I still wanted to prove that I was one. I'm still one of the best guys in my age group on the track. And keep in mind, too and this sound i mean it sounds absolutely crazy like i've won what seven other national titles on the track over you know my the age groups that i've been in you know i've sniffed the real podium at you know elite omnium like i've you know it's not it's not that this is was oh whoops i just showed up and won a race you know it's like there's a you know when you've competed a lot at at the highest level you can there's you should have this internal level of expectation. It's been a change out here because I, you know, I finally got with a good coaching group. I work with, um, you know, Roger Young, who's an ex Olympian as well. You know, I get to learn from, you know, the opportunity to learn and to train under somebody like that is incredible. You know, I almost liken it to the same time that Aaron Hartwell was my coach, um, you know, for prior to me winning my world title, in 2013, I think you need to surround yourself by these high caliber individuals. And for me, it's important to also respect the people that you're taking training advice from because they have been on the stage where you want to compete. You know, now I've never been good enough to go to the Olympics, but what I can tell you is that the ex- being able to leverage the experience of people who have been has helped me break whatever barriers there were to achieving things that I set out for myself.
0: So take us back to 2019 and that big moment where you get back onto the top step of the podium at track nationals. This was more than just a gold medal. If you can ever say a gold medal is just something, but this was more than just winning a gold medal.
1: This was a complete release of everything that had built up over the past three years. I was seated like sixth or seventh. Once I completed my ride, the format for individual pursuit is you ride, you know, at Worlds, you ride You ride a qualifying ride and then you ride a final. In Masters Nats, you ride one ride. So you have to just go all in. I've won the individual pursuit in the US before, but it wasn't something that I had necessarily staked out that this is what I want to win. But every time that I've done well in the individual pursuit, it's an indicator of how well that I was personally riding against my competitors. I I was probably like third or fourth, you know, like from the final round, fortunately slash, you know, unfortunately the guy that I was racing against, um, you know, I, I don't really know, like I since I had taken some years off from, racing masters track and not really chasing national championships. Like I didn't know anything about him, You know, I ended up passing him in the past, you know, last few laps, uh, which ideally on the track is it's not, you know, really you want to get seated with people that are close to your speed. So you can have like an unencumbered ride passing people causes you to divert from your line. Um, And so you have to take a little longer route around the track in theory. And that costs, you know, half a second, a second. I stuck, I stuck a great time and I was super surprised that it's, you know, it held up, you know, the guy who got ultimately got second place. I mean, he rode hard and he faded, Um, but we're sitting there with my coach and I'm like, holy shit. He's like, I think you're going to win this. And I was like, I don't know. He's going, you know, cause I, I know, I know Heath Dotson. I know he's a strong, he's, he's an incredibly talented track guy. Like I know, you know, like he's an ex-professional, like the guy's good. You know, I'm sitting there and I'm like, it's like, he's slowing down and his time is getting bigger and bigger. And I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe this. My coach is sitting next to me. He's like, I think you're going to win this. And I'm like, holy shit, <laughs> I'm going to win this. And then it was like, this just like Oh my god, I did it. <laughs> like whole like I had no idea. Like it was, you know, something, you know, like I mean, it was just incredible. Like I mean, I felt like whole it felt like almost winning the the first time I won um back I think uh what 2009 or two yeah, it was just like man, you know, when the first kind of you know, flicker of like holy shit, I might be good at this, you know, and it it just heart pulled me back to that moment. I was like, "Oh my god, I haven't had all these things happen and holy shit, I'm still one of the best. And it's that self-realization again, that was like, it's incredible. Like it's, you know, it's just like, wow, you found, it's like, you found something that was lost. That was really important to you.
0: Was Robin there that day?
1: I don't know if she was there for the individual pursuit. Cause I think,
0: I know she's been there for some of them because she She's easy to spot on the video because she likes to wear bright yellow. Uh, (laughs) and So, you know, you can see her in the audience. Obviously, she finds out that you've you've won. And, like, you guys have been such a team, such a partnership throughout this whole thing. How was that conversation a little bit better than the uh uh-oh conversation on, on September 30th of 2016?
1: Absolutely. Considering I don't remember much of the uh conversation. (laughs) Well, I think, you know, it was one of those things because I didn't really expect it. And I didn't feel like, you know, like I said, you just keep putting one foot in front of the other and hoping it's, you don't hope for it's enough, but I, I just said, you know, it's individual pursuit. I'm not expecting much out of this. You know, it's probably not worth the two or two hours of driving to come down for, you know, three and a half minutes of, watching me ride around the track because you know track is a lot of warm up and hanging out and waiting and then you race for a short time and then you're done so i probably said don't bother you know don't bother coming down cuz i mean it's to me it's like a warm up it was like oh well i'm just going to see how this goes and you know that'll probably set the tone for the rest of you know the meet
0: a lot of us have been alone over the last couple of months because of coronavirus and because we don't really know what's right to do or not to do when it comes down to groups or being around other people. But I think one of the things that I'm taking from this conversation, more than anything, is that value of having people around you, with you, there, next to you, to push you, support you, to, f- to be strong when you're not capable of being strong. Is that kind of a fair read?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this this is, you know, kind of the perception because I don't see myself as anything terribly special. Like I tell everybody, I believe my wife is the true athlete in our relationship and I just wasn't smart enough because I just keep showing up. (laughs) But, you know, like, yeah, I love being around people that, you know, kind of challenge me and maybe even, you know, call me out on my own bullshit when I get too lazy that's a huge part of excelling. That's a huge part of, you know, um, being good in sport. I think self, you know, like these past couple months, you know, I don't want to give the impression that it's been so laissez faire. Um, but I honestly, until recently I did one group ride, um, for when my buddy moved out of California area. And then I did the pre-ride in Cedar city and then eventually BWR That's been the most amount of people that I have ridden with since February. We, you know, despite how people view California and how Californians are reacting to coronavirus and this pandemic, you know, we've taken it very seriously. It's hard because of my job. I get to see how we, you know, we are dealing with this in, you know, in different areas of the U.S. and, you know, in the D.C. area and New York and the East Coast and, the cities with a huge population density, people take this really seriously. But if you look at California through the lens of the news, they're losing their minds. Like, we're not going to wear a mask. You're taking away our rights. And it's like, it's completely different worlds. But, you know, having that purview of how this pandemic is affecting people outside of just our, you know, the Republic of California, you know, we've tried to be responsible human beings, you know, limit our exposure, you know, wear your mask, you know, wash your hands kind of basic human grown up stuff.
0: <laughs> kind of going back to the question a little bit about the keys to having other people with you, to having teammates or friends or compatriots or whatever you want to call them. But when we are in a position where we can get together much more broadly and without limits, it sounds like that's the way that we go. We, we have the reason we survive. And the reason we excel is because of the people that we're with.
1: Absolutely. I I, I do agree with that. I, I mean, I think it is, you know, look at your circle, look at the people, look at the people around you and, Use them as that inspiration or use them as that kind of guiding light to kind of help you achieve what you're looking for out of, you know, in this case, cycling. You know, I've had the opportunity to race with some incredible people and, you know, I've learned so much from them. Even the short time that I've been around the, you know, my team out here now or, you know, people like it's from every interaction, from every group or every team ride or ride with somebody or conversation, you know, you just take something, you know, you look to take a little piece of their experience, you know, with you and that helps build your bridge or that helps build your path moving forward. And if you're not paying attention, you're already, you know, kind of losing the game. It's one of those things that like there people are willing to maybe not willing, willing may not be the right word, but people offer you all of these nuggets if you're paying attention. And it's up to, you know, it's really incumbent on you to take that information, process it and use it to move forward. I'm good at creating situations where I know that I can excel using, using a lot of losing to eventually win. I don't want to say that's the secret sauce to my success, but that's, you know, that's kind of, you know, how I look at it. Um, you know, I, in order to get those extreme highs, like I've gotten a lot of second places and a lot of, I don't want to say not a lot of DNS, but a lot of anonymous, you know, placings as well. Um, you know, you learn something from every time you put yourself out there. You know, if you're paying attention, the people around you have a great effect on whether you succeed or you fail. Give yourself that fighting chance and surround yourself with people that kind of have your interests you know, are willing to listen to you and share, you know, what they've learned with you.
0: Jason, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for being a part of this and sharing this story.
1: Oh, you got it. <laughs> this, this has been great.
0: Hi, this is Alex Hohen. I'm the 2018 U23 National Road Race Champion, and I currently race for Wildlife Generation Pro Cycle. I've been working with Source Endurance for about four years now, and it's one of the best decisions I've ever made. Uh, Adam Mills came up to me about four years ago or so, and saw my numbers and wanted to start working with me, and I moved to Elevate KHS for my first year as a pro, and Adam and I have been doing good things ever since, and there's more to come. So please join Alex and myself and Whitney Allison and so many others at Source Endurance. Please visit their website, source-e.net. And when you find the coaching services that you want, use Criterium Nation at checkout for $50 off.
2: Hi, um, I'm Robin Midoff and... I'm married to Jason Midoff, who I affectionately and much of the community refers to as Tiger. You, myself,
0: Jason, my wife Tiffany, we all became really, really good friends in like 2014, 2015, 2016, because we had identified each other as dinks, you know, double income, no kids. And we started to hang out and explore Washington, D.C. And then one day you and Jason up and decided that. Bethesda Washington DC was no longer the cool place for you and you loaded up two dogs a cat a full RV and you drove off to California
2: that's interesting the up and decided I think from the time that I met and married Jason he kept saying you've always lived on the east coast don't you want to go somewhere else and I thought nope family and friends are on the east coast Yeah, but I've always lived on the East Coast. Don't you want to go somewhere else with me? (laughs) So I think he, as part of our marriage contract, he planted that seed very early that he wanted to explore and wanted to be open to new things. And as you and others are aware from cycling, he's explored not only the country, but just Internationally, he's had the opportunity to travel and do things. Based on where we both were in our careers, it was coming to a point where it was feasible for us to pick up and move. Now, whether or not we had agreed to move 3,000 miles away, I'm not sure, but we felt go big or go home. Uh, And with the help of your wife, this might be a shout out to Tiffany when you sell your house in 12 hours, the deed is done. You got to pack up and start trucking.
0: And Jason's alluded to this, but straight up, you were yourself a really accomplished bike racer. Not only were you a bike racer, you were also a USA Cycling official during your time here in the Mid-Atlantic, and you were a part of the leadership for the the board of directors as well. So you are not a typical cycling spouse. You are a bike racer yourself.
2: That's generous of you, Rob. Um, I I was. I mean, I met Jason through the cycling community and You hear the adage that friends are the family you choose for yourself, and we chose a family that has grown and changed over the years but brought so much to both of us. So I'm thankful for having met Jason in the community. Um, Again, just kind of the way my career headed, I couldn't put in the 20 hours or more of training that I was doing when I first started um it was very challenging for me if i can't excel at something i don't want to continue it and it was very hard as as many racers can attest it's one thing to be a dnf it's one thing to be off the back but to know you can do more and better but you don't have the bandwidth that is that is tough and i had to make some calculated decisions um and fortunately i had my dream job that started in 2012 and that was the that was the change for me that i could no longer race and compete at the level at which i was when I started dating Jason, uh, folks know we got married after race season. My biggest stress might have been, did I am I gonna have bike tan lines or am I gonna crash and have road rash before our wedding? Um, I'm sure my family did not quite understand why we couldn't get married between February and September. You know, what's interesting with cycling, when I when I met Jason and his family, one of the first conversations with his parents are, When are you gonna give up this silly thing you do on the weekends? That was what was said to Jason. And I kind of didn't know much about the commitment to cycling. Jason was still a cat, too. And I don't think he'd put in the same focus that I then saw over the next few years. And fast forward, you know, we got married in 2009. And his father uh, read a, a speech for us or some words at the wedding and broke down crying when he had to say, I'm going to cry that his son is now a national champion. And to see that switch of a father who didn't understand why his son was doing this extracurricular every weekend to realize, I have a national champion son. Um, And then his father got into officiating because he wanted to give back to the community that had given so much to both of us.
0: And I had forgot to tell you this when we were in the green room, but I was going to promise you that I wasn't going to cry during the course of this interview (laughs) if you didn't.
2: Yeah. I can't promise I won't cry. <laughs> Cyclins brought a lot of joy and pain for all of us in the community, I think.
0: But you, you guys move out to California and you take this incredible journey. the The photographs and the entire experience are just inspiring. You, you know, you've got to start all over again. You don't really know anybody and you're committed to your work. So, you know, you are... At the office all the time. It's hard to get to know, but uh, to know people, but you've got each other. Right. So and
2: and three fur kids. (laughs) So I mean,
0: what's that? What are those first couple of months? The summer of 2016? Like for you?
2: We were very fortunate in that we connected immediately with our landlords who are our friends today. Um, I think part of how we got the, the house that we rented was because Jason was at the time, he had just left the position president of Mabra, and he was saying how much he was into wanting to give back to the cycling community. And it just so happened that our landlords were also very much involved in getting cycling lanes and safer cycling laws and awareness around Los Angeles. So there was a neat fit right there. And it just kind of melded into, you know, our landlords and other friends giving us things to do every weekend. So we really we got here July 31st, And from the first weekend, we just were exploring, we were riding together, we're going to outdoor festivals, everything's outdoor. So we were really living it up for about six weeks.
0: And then September 30th comes around, you know, less than a mile from your guys's house. Somebody pulls right in front of Jason and sends him to the hospital. Obviously, you weren't there. You didn't see the immediate impacts. How did you find out about this?
2: It's a good thing I'm not on video cuz we might start crying again. <laughs> Jason jokingly refers to the fact that because I had security clearances and all of that got, you know, hacked that we get all these telemarketer calls all the time. So we rarely answer our phones if we don't know the number. And that night it was around, you know, 7:12, 7, 7:13 7, and my phone rang and I looked down and I didn't recognize the number but it was local. And most of the numbers that come in telemarketing are still Maryland, D.C., Virginia. So I just answered on a whim. I had heard an ambulance go by two minutes before that call. And the call was a woman who was, I would say, screaming, but, you know, memories change and just said, are you Jason's wife? I said, yep. And she said, he's not doing very good. He got hit. And she was hysterical. At which point, you know, you kind of go, into, go within yourself to be calm because someone has to be. Um, I knew he was on his bike. I knew what that meant. And I just said, can you please hand the phone to somebody who can talk to me about where you are? It just so happened. And this is interesting in today's time that there was a Black Lives Matter protest about 200 yards up the street and about 15 to 20 officers were around. So there were officers on the scene almost instantly after Jason was hit and an officer got on the phone and talked to me while I drove there. He told me it was about a mile from where I lived. I explained to him, I just moved from Maryland. I don't know where I am. Can you please talk to me? So yeah, so I got there um, before they drove off. So I got to see Jason in in the ambulance.
0: What was that like seeing your husband pretty badly beat up?
2: You know, it's surreal because having raced competitively or at a level where, you know, losing skin and crashing was not foreign to us. That's okay. That's par for the course. You know, take a derm. We should be invested in it financially if we're not already. I think it was more, again, you kind of, to your earlier point, we moved out to California and we, we had a very thin network of support here. I have a dear friend who was in San Diego and coincidentally, she was coming up to visit that weekend. So my first call to her, which was unintelligible, as she told me later, please come up. Jason's been hit. I don't know if he's dead or not. So she was on her way up. So I had a dear friend who was coming up, but you just take, you take uh, assessment of the situation and you do what you have to. And so I was very calm and maybe it's my legal training that I got there and I said, show me the car. And the driver said, would you like a flashlight? I said, yeah, I'd like a flashlight. Tell me where you hit him. And in my mind, I was just thinking, I want to recreate what happened. And so they gave me a flashlight. I started taking pictures of that car. Like, I don't know who in their right mind does this. It turned out to be helpful later. The officers were asking me what was on the bike. They wouldn't let me in the ambulance at the time. So I thought, I'm not going to be hysterical. I'm just going to assess the scene before anything changes. And again, we've had friends in the cycling community who've been hit and the drivers had left. So there was some part of me that was functioning on a cognitive level of get every detail you can right now. And so I did. And then I got into the ambulance. And Jay doesn't remember this, but I did talk to him. So I saw that he was still there. And I wanted to kiss him. And I wanted to tell him that I loved him. And I knew it was bad. I knew how he landed on his face. Did he have a beard at that time? He did not have a beard. He was very clean shaven. um, And the beard (laughs) that he grew in before the accident was always very dark. And then you see after the accident, very gray. So there's something to be said for when you suffer a traumatic brain injury. Yeah. Um, so he went off in the ambulance and, uh, again, I was in close contact with my friend Michelle, who was coming up from San Diego, um, and telling her I'm going to the hospital and, you know, just a big shout out to, I will stop. My voice will stop shaking in a moment when I, um, I immediately called the DC Bellow network. You know, I had Josh who was in, uh, Utah at the time. I think I texted him and I just said, Help. I don't know what to do. And so Josh was immediately on the phone to Jason's friend and physician, Maddie, back in D.C., and Mark Summers, who was in our wedding, was on the phone, and everybody just rallied together from outside the state and the country. And I'm really thankful. And again, the emotion is you realize what a family you have in the cycling community. It is the
0: scariest thing as a bike rider, as somebody who's out there, in an exposed condition, we all know that there's this risk that you run, that somebody in an automobile will hit you, but you never think that it's really going to happen. How has this kind of changed your perception of Jason going off to ride or of you going off to ride?
2: Again you, you you can't enter into a sport like this much like skiing or other things where you're you're going at fast speeds and not accept that there is some risk. Jason and I didn't have that moment to stop and say, do we need to stop this or recalculate what we love doing riding our bikes right because we weren't you know, wasn't thinking about children. sure, I'd had my fare of crashes and ambulances and all that and it's just par for the course. I've been an athlete my whole life. so I think again, it's it's now it's a different mind frame and again I, with you included just knowing folks have been hit and they've been fine they've been banged up and we tease them about it or say man that just sucks the driver didn't stop it's different when all of a sudden you see the impacts that come from something that causes um, a traumatic brain injury and I kind of go back to that because Jason is a, a physical specimen. I mean, he's an amazing athlete, but it's because he works really, really, really hard. And as his wife for over 10 years, I've seen that. But where Jason excels above anyone I've ever met is in his mental capacity, his strength. And it's not just strength in a sport that makes you suffer, but it's strength to come back from an injury where someone said, you're not going to ride again. You're not going to ride at the level you were riding. And I think... What I saw, and you saw this, Rob, because you're close to us, and I think I reached out to friends to see, um, and folks should be free to talk about it, to see a depression that kind of set in when Jason realized he couldn't open a tube of toothpaste, couldn't put on his clothes by himself, couldn't walk our dogs because he couldn't hold a leash. Um, You know, those things heal um but mentally how do you battle out with will i get back to where i was will i get back to a sense of normalcy if this is the new normal how do i how do i do that right so it's not even you know our first question wasn't when will jason race again it was when will jason be able to walk our dogs and those are things that people might take for granted you break a wrist you break a shoulder but little tiny things that you notice every day that's that's what you guys see. What I saw was, again, the brain injury. We went to neurologists. There are things that I learned, and Jason may have shared this. You know, when you're just amateur athletes, you're not on a pro level, you don't have the support system, and pro meaning, you know, paid to do this, you may not know what you need to do to recover. So me trying to get my husband out of this really sad state, he couldn't ride his bike, he could only walk, well, let's go to an amusement park, you know, we're in California, let's go to Disneyland. Note to the, the listeners out there, you don't go to an amusement park when you've had a traumatic brain injury. <laughs> um, getting on the transformer ride and flashing lights was probably not the smartest move that I have done as his wife. And so that was new to me, right? Where Jason had to say to me, I'm not comfortable. Can we leave? And I thought, what's wrong? Like, you love parks. You want to do this. And it was all of the noise and the sights and the sounds. And we did that maybe four weeks after he was hit. I just had no appreciation for what I could or couldn't do for him mentally right i'm just thinking i want him to be happy so it's interesting we've we've learned we've learned a lot on that and then again he may or may not have shared with you but you know this was a two year recovery for jason a lot of the folks in this in this area did not know who jason was unless they'd raced on the track against him i would challenge anyone that says that there's a wife that's more proud of her husband and what he's done. And so that would be very hard for me on the sidelines. And the announcers would be riffing like, we don't know who this guy is. He doesn't have any race legs. And I'm like, what? (laughs) And then finally at a race, somebody, you know, Jason, when he finally got back a year and a half later and started riding and would just ride away from the field. And Mabra will have seen this. They knew this the year that he won the world. He just rode away from the field. He was fueled by just the training and just the mental. And then he got the nickname Beast from the East because it was, who is this beast from the East with the beard? Who is this guy? And I thought, just wait. You've seen nothing yet. It's only a year and a half since this accident. Just wait. And then we've seen it with last year with Jason, you know, winning the scratch race that he'd never won before. Jason's not a scratch, a sprinter, but he
0: did it. I think we do need to step back and talk about the things that you were able to do and the lessons that you learned approaching a spouse who desperately needed your help in ways that you were unfamiliar with or in ways that you don't, you you didn't really like sign up for this when you said I do, but it's for better or for worse. And so the physical injuries heal. There are doctors There are physical therapists, there are surgeries that can follow to fix the physical. It's that, and Jason talks about this, it's that traumatic brain injury, that frustration, that depression that sets in where you're just like, these things should connect, but they're not.
2: I think everyone's probably reading more and more just because of just the publicity that's been given to traumatic brain injury about how you don't even know if these effects where they'll show up 10 years from now. Right. Um, you know, I Jason and I got married later in our lives and it is, you know, for better or worse. And we committed to that. And it's been nothing but better, <laughs> even with the pain and the lows, like we are better for each other. You have in a moment like that where your life is changed inexplicably and you don't have control. And what it's done that Jason might have shared with you is we don't take anything for granted. We don't take each other for granted. We don't take each day for granted. We don't take COVID for granted. Very serious about we want to be healthy. It's in our control to keep ourselves healthy when when it's in our control. Again, we are now... This is 2016, almost four years later. He can tell me that it's the brain injury where he forgot to take out the trash or do the dishes. I ain't buying it anymore. <laughs> uh he's recovered. Um, but his personality has changed. And I think anyone that's that's a spouse of someone who's had a traumatic brain injury could could speak to kind of where that change has happened. But I think outwardly what I have noticed is, again, just really thankful for what we have and for our health. And, um, you know, I'm glad to say that we have a network now in California, and I have really wonderful ladies that have, and even gentlemen at the track, people that have gotten me back out in riding because that was probably, for me, the harder part. You couldn't have paid me to get on a bicycle for the two years that I saw what Jason was going through to recover. No way.
0: Talk about your anxiety, because I've gotten the call from you on at least one occasion. You know, you're tracking Jason on your phone and the blue dot on the phone doesn't move. Is there anxiety that you feel when he's overdue?
2: Oh, certainly. I mean, you know that. I mean, again, it's part of it's a and I don't say this lightly, it's PTSD, right? I want to know where he is at all times. And I want to know that he's moving. And probably one of the funnier parts was he rode with a friend, I don't know, six months ago, Um, they didn't want to be out on the roads, because they knew it was dangerous and didn't want to risk going to a hospital and the dot stopped moving. And then I got a picture because I texted both of them. Are you okay? And the picture with them walking carrying their bikes. So, the dot wasn't moving very quickly because Jason had decided where it said road closed that that meant keep going. And so they had to end up getting off their bikes to keep going on the trail that Jason wanted to take. But you're right, I track him. Um, I, I track him whenever he goes out. And I asked him, probably much to his angst, like, how long? Where are you going? Where are you headed? Because it's the only thing that can potentially relieve the anxiety I have until he comes back. Now, let's let's preface that with Jason doesn't do one-hour rides. Jason does, oh, it's just going to be a quick spin. And seven hours later, he's still spinning. He's just a different animal, right? Like, he's not going to ride a bike trail. He's going to say, what's the tallest mountain close to us? Okay, I'll see you in six hours. I married this person who had a pursuit of exploring new areas and just getting the most out of life. And this brings him joy. And so I have to kind of balance my anxiety with, wow, he's doing something that really makes him happy and a happy husband makes for a happier wife.
0: (laughs) October of last year, it was that, that was the culmination of Jason's rebirth in the cycling world. You married a national champion. You You were the wife of a world champion whose life got turned completely upside down because of the negligence of a young person. And so he wins the individual pursuit, which is a solo event. There is nothing...
2: (laughs) Without training for it, I might add. Like, you didn't even focus on that. (laughs) You blows you, my mind.
0: You weren't there that day for the individual pursuit, were you?
2: No, I was at work. I think most of his races were during working hours, 9 to 5. And again, I think we had this discussion because there are very few races. It's it's certainly at that level when you are racing against people that have put in the time and effort, I'm not going to miss those races. But Jay was just like, "Ah, eh, I haven't focused on the time trial bike. I haven't done this." Which is true. He hadn't focused on that discipline. But he had focused on his training, and I don't think he, or I for cer- certain, had realized how much stronger he had gotten. He had gotten back to where he was.
0: So you get a a happy phone call this time.
2: I th- I think I got texts from folks or a picture from him, like "Holy shit, I just won the pursuit!" And I thought, okay, that doesn't surprise me because he's amazing. Like if he sets his mind to it. And he might have decided i don't know what was in his mindset but to me jason doesn't show up to a race to just ride with friends jason shows up to win one of my favorite movies ricky bobby if you're not first you're last (laughs) (laughs) that that is now
0: the second time that ricky bobby has been quoted on this podcast there Uh, you go
2: or i'm gonna come at you like a spider monkey i mean only jason has as you and folks that ride with him know He has the stamina to keep talking and to throw out movie lines while people are riding 35 miles per hour. I mean, that's one of the things I love about him is that Jason's ability to mentally crush his competitors is because this is fun, right? So I'm sure he wasn't speaking during his individual pursuit, but I can't say I was surprised that I got the text that he had won it because I know what he does for training. He does what others, whether, you know, everyone can make up excuses But Jason puts in the work.
0: Then on top of the individual pursuit, he wins the scratch
2: race. Yeah, that's a bummer. I'm a little sore about that because he told me, don't come to that. Eh, I never win the scratch. Don't come to that. And all I heard from everyone is that he had a guttural whoop whoop like around the track when he came out because he had surprised himself. And everyone just said it was just the, the coolest thing to see how excited he was because he was in shock. So yeah, when you're the wife and you miss that, <laughs> and I'm still waiting for the video of that, <laughs> that was huge for him. That's probably next to worlds, probably the biggest thing. Um, and from what I understand, you know, he was lined up against sprinters and just pulled away at the end, which you have to do. This is not Jason's discipline to be a sprinter. But I go back to he puts in the work. And he's mentally tougher than anybody I know.
0: Well, Robin, thank you so much for sharing this with us. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Criterium Nation, a proud member of the Wide Angle Podium network of shows. Today's show was written, produced, and edited by me, Rob Kelly. Please do follow us on Twitter or on Instagram at Criterium Nation. And your home for the best in Criterium Racing is CriteriumNation.com. Please join us here again soon for more stories from our Criterium Nation.
3: an episode. That was amazing when that one person said that thing and then the other person totally like set them straight. Oh man, that was great. I'm going to have to go back and listen to that again. But hey, since I have your attention now, hello, cyclocross friends, new friends and old friends and soon to be friends. My name's Bill. I host another show on the Wide Angle Podium Podcast Network. It's called Cyclocross Radio and we talk to the biggest stars in cyclocross and even the medium stars in cyclocross and some of the soon-to-be stars in cyclocross. We also have a panel discussion we call the Media Pit with my buddy Zach and Michael, where we go over all of the new rules that might be coming out and the calendar situations and races that happen. It's a great time. It's a great conversation. We built an amazing community that we want you to be part of. So go to WideAnglePodium.com. Become a member there, then go to your favorite podcast app and subscribe to Cyclocross Radio. Do it! Do it now, Cyclocross friends.